Okay, today we continue our introduction to apologetics by looking at the Leibnizian cosmological argument. Now, a note out there for the philosophy types who might be watching this. This is only going to be an introductory look um, at the argument. So we're not going to be considering any and all possible objections. We're not going to be considering all the relevant philosophical questions. So chill out. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz was a German polymath, a philosopher, a scientist, and a diplomat. Leibniz is often referred to as one of the last universal geniuses because he made significant and novel contributions to multiple fields of inquiry. In fact, Leibniz managed to discover calculus at the same time and independently from Isaac Newton. In philosophy, Leibniz produced many important works and developed many influential ideas. But he's most famous for his unique version of the cosmological argument. Leibniz was seeking an answer to two fundamental questions. Why the world exists rather than not, and why it exists this way rather than some other way. He argues that in order to answer these deep questions, it won't do to appeal to anything within the world itself. Rather, only something that transcends the world can act as the ultimate reason for why things are and why they are the way that they are. Here's an informal sketch of Leibniz's argument. No individual thing in the world or collection of things that is the world contains within itself the sufficient reason for why it exists. Now, this is just to say that everything that exists in the world is a contingent being. Something is contingent if it exists but doesn't have to exist. It can possibly not exist. So what Leibniz is really asking is this. What explains the fact that there are any contingent things at all? No individual thing in the world or collection of things that is the world can be the sufficient reason for why anything else in the world exists. It does no good to explain the existence of anything in the world by appealing to anything else in the world, because whatever thing you can appeal to in the world as the reason for some other thing's existence will also itself be contingent and thus require a reason for its existence. Contingent beings cannot be the sufficient reason for the existence of other contingent beings. Therefore, Leibniz argues, the sufficient reason for the existence of things in the world or the collection of things that is the world must be found entirely outside the world. A sufficient reason for the existence of the world must be sought in some being that transcends the world and that contains within itself the sufficient reason of its own existence. In other words, to provide a sufficient reason for the existence of any contingent being or any collection of contingent beings, beings that can possibly not exist, will need to appeal to a necessary being or, or to a being who cannot possibly not exist or a being who must exist or a being who has no potential for non-existence. Now, the structure of Leibniz's argument is actually quite simple. If we're to find a complete or sufficient explanation for the class of beings that are contingent, no matter the size or no matter the age of this contingent class, it must be found in a being that entirely transcends the class of contingent beings altogether. It must be found in a necessary being. In recent times, Leibniz's argument has been revitalized and reformulated. There are several formulations of the Leibnizian cosmological argument on offer today. One of them goes like this. Anything that exists has an explanation of its existence. 
either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. The universe exists. Therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Therefore, the explanation of the existence of the universe is God. Now, this argument is formally valid, which means that the conclusion follows from the premises according to the rules of logic. But is it sound? Well, that all depends on the truth of the premises. Premise 3, that the universe exists, is evidently true. And premise 4 logically follows from premises 1 and 3. So whether the argument is sound will depend on the truth of the two primary premises of the argument, which are premises 1 and 2. Let's take a closer look at premise 1. Anything that exists has an explanation of its existence. This premise expresses a formulation of an explanatory principle called the principle of sufficient reason, or PSR for short. A negative formulation of the principle of sufficient reason is that there are no brute facts where a brute fact is a fact or a state of affairs that lacks an explanation. All facts, according to this principle, have explanations. The PSR is the cornerstone of the Leibnizian cosmological argument. But why think that it's true? The PSR actually has a lot going for it, and it's as well established as any principle can be. To begin with, the PSR enjoys universal inductive support. The everyday things that we encounter in the world have explanations for their existence. We can see this in two ways. First, we consistently find explanations for things when we look for them. And even when we don't find them, we never really doubt that there is an explanation. Rather, we just assume that the explanation is hidden from us or is inaccessible to us. Second, the world simply doesn't behave as if the PSR were false. A world in which the PSR did not hold would be a chaotic and unintelligible mess. If things could exist without any explanation of their existence, then anything could happen for no reason at all, and anything could just pop into existence from nothing at all. Imagine a world where things could just happen for no reason at all. A world in which gravity could spontaneously change, or where automobiles periodically just turn into pumpkins, or where sandwiches suddenly become conscious. Imagine a world where things just pop into existence from nothing. A horse could suddenly appear from nowhere in your living room. A volcano could pop into existence in your backyard. And Michael Jackson could suddenly appear moonwalking on your roof. Moreover, if there's no explanation for the existence of things, there's no reason to think that these kinds of random events would be unlikely or improbable rather than occurring all the time. And this is because objective probabilities are grounded in the objective tendencies of existing things. But if things could occur for no reason at all or pop into existence from nothing at all, then there's no sense to be made of objective tendencies of things. And therefore, there's no grounds to say that randomly occurring things or events would be unlikely or improbable. But of course, our world is not like this at all. Things don't just spontaneously pop into existence without a cause. Our world is orderly. It's structured. It's intelligible. And the best explanation for our orderly world is that the PSR is true. The fact that we live in such a world would be nothing less than a miracle if PSR were false. So the PSR has overwhelming inductive support. But the principle is even stronger than this. For the vast majority of us, 
The principle that whatever exists has an explanation of its existence is a self-evident truth. If something is self-evident to someone, it's more certain for that person than any empirical argument could possibly show. And this is no doubt how the PSR seems to most of us. The fact that things that exist have an explanation for their existence just seems evidently true, as it tracks with common sense and it fits our expectations. Of course, a clever philosopher may be able to come along and disabuse this intuition in some, but the principle will be no less self-evident for the rest of us. Of course, something that's self-evident is difficult to prove, not because it's doubtful, but because it will function as a fundamental principle of reason and rationality, and will thus be more obviously true for us than anything that we could possibly offer in support of it. So if we're going to argue for the truth of something that is evident to us, we can only do so indirectly and through an ancient method of argumentation called reductio ad absurdum, or just reductio for short. In a reductio, we assume that the evident truth in question is false, and then demonstrate that if false, absurd consequences follow. Thus, in order to avoid the absurd consequences, we must embrace the evident truth. Contemporary philosophers have developed such reductio arguments for the PSR by showing that a denial of the PSR entails radical perceptual skepticism. In other words, if we deny the principle that things have an explanation for their existence, then we're going to have a powerful reason to doubt the deliverances of our sense perceptions or our empirical knowledge that depends on them. Now, this is more devastating than you might at first think. Upon reflection, I think it's easy to see that the vast majority of our knowledge as human beings is grounded in and traceable back to our perceptions of the world outside our minds. So that if we have reason to doubt those perceptions, we'll also have reason to doubt the vast majority of what we take ourselves to know. This, of course, includes whatever scientific knowledge we think we have, since science itself is dependent on perception. The reason is that our perceptual experiences and our knowledge that's grounded in them are caused in us by things that exist in the world, things that exist outside of our minds. But if the PSR is false, if things can just happen for no reason at all or just pop into existence for no reason at all, then our perceptions can be like this too. They too can just pop into our minds for no reason at all and do so having the appearance of being caused by things in the world. In other words, if, if the PSR is false, then there may be no causal connection at all between our perceptual experiences and the world outside of our minds. For all we know then, our knowledge grounded in experience could be a complete illusion. And as we saw above, if we deny the PSR, there's no way for us to say that such a skeptical scenario would be unlikely or improbable. Again, for all we know, having perceptions totally unrelated to the world outside our minds may be happening all the time. Again, if PSR is false. In other words, if the PSR is not true, then we ought to doubt the deliverances of our perceptions and our empirical knowledge that comes from them. Thus, a denial of the PSR leads to a radical, universal, global skepticism that utterly undermines nearly all of our knowledge in general and our scientific knowledge in particular. And the only way to avoid this absurdly skeptical scenario is to accept the PSR, is to accept the principle that whatever exists has an explanation for its existence. In argument form, this reductio goes like this. If the PSR were false, 
then we should not trust our perceptions in the empirical knowledge that's grounded in them. But we do trust our perceptions in the empirical knowledge that's grounded in them. Therefore, the PSR is true. The second part of premise one simply identifies the possible sources of explanation for the existence of anything. The explanation for any existing thing will be found either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Now, as we saw earlier when summarizing Leibniz's own argument, to say that a thing's existence is explained by some other thing outside of it is just to say that the thing in question is a contingent being. Contingent beings have dependent existence since they depend on something external to exist. All beings that we experience are like this. They have an explanation for their existence in some external cause. Again, as we saw above, if something is not contingent and dependent on something external for its existence, then it will be a necessary being. A necessary being has independent existence. It exists by the necessity of its own nature. Now, these are the only two options. Either a thing is contingent or it's necessary. If a thing is not explained by the necessity of its own nature or by an external cause, then it would be explained by nothing. But this, as we've seen, is ruled out by the principle of sufficient reason. So it has to be one or the other. Okay, so premise one is just about as well supported as any premise in any argument can possibly be. But now we can see that since premise one is true, both premise three and premise four follow by strict logical deduction. Because we know that anything that exists has an explanation of its existence, and that the universe is clearly something that exists, then we can also know that the universe has to have an explanation of its existence. The only premise left to consider is premise two, which says that if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Now, why should we think this? Well, we've already seen that whatever exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Now, the universe is clearly contingent. After all, we've already noted that the universe just is the collection of all the contingent things that exist. Since everything that makes up the universe is contingent, the universe itself is also contingent. Now, the universe does not have to exist. It's therefore dependent on an external cause for its existence. So, to explain the existence of the universe, we cannot appeal to anything within the universe, but rather must look to something outside of the universe. But since the universe just is the whole of matter, space, and time, what is outside the universe must be immaterial, spaceless, and timeless, or eternal. Moreover, we can see that the explanation of the universe must be a necessary being, rather than a contingent being. If the explanation of the universe were a contingent being, then it too would require an explanation of its existence, per the PSR. Thus, the only thing that can ultimately explain the existence of the universe is going to have to be a necessary being. And as we've seen, a necessary being exists independently, and it's self-sufficient. Such a being would also have to be uncaused. For if it were caused, then it would not be a necessary being, but a contingent being. Of course, we also know that since this being is the cause of the universe, it has to be unimaginably powerful. So minimally, the explanation and cause of the universe has to be an immaterial, spaceless, eternal, 
necessary, independent, self-sufficient, uncaused being of unimaginable power. And this is what theists have traditionally meant by the word God. Now, more can be said here. Further philosophical reflection on the nature of a necessary being, a being who exists by the necessity of its own nature, will plausibly reveal other divine attributes. For example, we can know through philosophical reflection that the cause of the universe must also be infinite or unbounded or unrestricted. It must be purely actual with no potentiality at all. It must be simple. It must be one, perfect and good. And it must be endowed with intellect and will. This, however, takes us into deep philosophical reflection that goes well beyond the scope of an introduction. So we'll leave it to one side for now. Premise two, then, is plausibly true. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. But from premise two and from premise four, we get premise five. We get the conclusion. Therefore, the explanation of the existence of the universe is God. The Leibnizian cosmological argument is thus both valid and sound. But hang on, isn't this too quick? Aren't there other ways to uphold the principle of sufficient reason without appealing to a God? I don't think so. To see why, let's briefly look at two common responses to the argument. The first response asks, why can't everything just be contingent? And the second asks, why can't the universe itself be necessary? Why can't the universe be the necessary being? So let's look at the first of these. Why can't everything just be contingent? Why do we need to appeal to a necessary being? Can't we just say that every contingent thing that exists in the universe is caused or explained by some other contingent thing that exists in the universe, and that the series of contingent things causing other contingent things is just infinite? Perhaps there exists a beginningless series of contingent things, where each contingent thing is caused by some previously existing contingent thing. So that contingent thing A is caused by contingent thing B, and that contingent thing B is caused by contingent thing C, and so on to infinity. Here we would have an infinite series of contingent things, where each thing within the series has an explanation of its existence in the prior thing. Thus, the existence of everything in the series is explained satisfying the PSR, and doing so without any need to appeal to some necessarily existing being. Now, for the moment, we'll allow that such an infinite causal series is possible, although we'll see later when we look at the Kalam cosmological argument that there are good reasons to think that such a series is, in fact, not possible. Here, however, we'll let this pass. We will allow an infinite causal series for the sake of argument. The point here is that even if such an infinite series could exist, it would not do anything to avoid the conclusion of the Leibnizian cosmological argument. And this is because it's just not true that everything that needs to be explained is explained within the infinite series of contingent things. There is still something in this picture that demands an explanation, namely the infinite series itself. We can still ask, why does the infinite series itself exist, rather than nothing at all? Additionally, we can ask, why does it continue in existence from one moment to the next? After all, the series is contingent. So why doesn't it just not randomly fail to exist? And it's not just the sheer existence and continued existence of the infinite series that would still demand an explanation. 
We also need an explanation as to why this particular infinite series of contingent things exists, rather than some other infinite series of contingent things. Leibniz himself provides a great illustration here. He asks us to imagine an infinite series of geometry books, each one exactly copied from the previous one. Now, although we would have an immediate or proximate explanation for the existence of each of the geometry books in the series, we would still not have explained everything that requires explaining. We could ask, for example, why does this infinite series contain geometry books rather than, say, I don't know, algebra books? Or why is it a series of books at all rather than, say, a series of weasels or an infinite series of Big Macs instead? Of course, we could ask the very same question about our universe as well, even if we allow that our universe is infinitely old. Why is our universe made up of the contingent things that it's made up of, rather than some other contingent things? Why people, cats, and cows, rather than, say, dwarves, elves, and wizards? Clearly, then, simply positing an infinite chain of contingently existing things will not do. Even if such an infinite series could exist to explain everything that needs explaining, we would still need to appeal to something external to the series itself, something over and above it, something that exists by the necessity of its own nature, rather than being caused to exist by something else. Again, the second objection asks, why can't the universe itself be necessary? Sometimes in response to the Leibnizian argument, skeptics will claim that the theist is running afoul of what's known as the fallacy of composition, which is committed when one illicitly infers that since the parts of something have some feature, the whole must also have that same feature. But this is not true. Sometimes the whole contains a feature that the parts lack. For example, although each part of an elephant is light in weight, it's not true that the elephant as a whole is light in weight. Likewise, just because each part or thing in the universe is contingent, it doesn't follow, we're told, that the universe itself or the collection of things is contingent. Maybe the universe as a whole, then, is necessary, even though its parts are contingent. But this response won't do, because it's simply not the case that every inference from part to whole commits the fallacy of composition. Whether or not this fallacy is committed depends entirely on the feature of the parts that is being considered. For example, if every individual brick of a wall is yellow, then it follows that the entire wall will also be yellow. And this is a, a perfectly legitimate inference. No fallacy of composition is being committed here. Where weight is the feature under consideration, as with the elephant example, one cannot validly infer from part to whole. But where color is the feature under consideration, one can validly infer from part to whole. Now, when it comes to the universe, the feature of the parts that is under consideration in the Leibnizian cosmological argument is contingency. The individually existing things that collectively make up the universe are all contingent. They don't have to exist, and their existence is explained by something external to them. Now, it's easy to see that, as a feature of things, contingency is like the color example rather than like the weight example. Now, to see this, just imagine any contingent thing that you like. Say, a bicycle. One bicycle is obviously contingent. It doesn't have to exist. 
But the same can be said for two bicycles. Two bicycles are still obviously contingent. In fact, add as many bicycles as you like, even an infinite number of them. And this will do nothing to change the fact that the collection of bicycles, no matter the size, will still be contingent. In fact, collections of things are more obviously contingent than individual things are, because when it comes to a series or collections of contingent things, as we've seen, we need to explain why the collection or series is gathered together and organized in just the way that it is. Collections of contingent things are actually doubly contingent. To think that contingent things could possibly add up to anything other than something contingent is to commit what philosophers have referred to as a construction error. Things that are dependent on an external cause can never collectively add up to something that is independent and self-existent. Dependent things are simply the wrong kind of materials for constructing something that is non-dependent. Dependent parts form dependent wholes. Dependent things form a dependent universe. And again, the size, number, or age of dependent things is totally irrelevant. You can increase the number or age of dependent things to infinity, but this will never change the fact that they are still dependent. So it's not in any way fallacious to infer that if each part of the universe is explained by an external cause, then the universe itself will have to be explained by an external cause. And as we've seen, that outside cause must be God. Now, as I said, the Leibnizian cosmological argument that we've sketched out here goes through even if the universe is infinite in size or age. A universe made up of dependent things will always be dependent on an outside cause, no matter how many dependent things there are, or no matter how old. However, if the universe is finite in age and size, then the fact that it is contingent and that it thus requires an outside cause for its existence becomes all the more obvious. The next version of the cosmological argument that we will survey, the Kalam cosmological argument, argues exactly this, that the universe in fact began to exist a finite time ago and therefore needs a cause of its existence. These two arguments, though independent of each other, are complementary and form a cumulative case for the existence of an uncaused necessary being.